You're listening to the Comms Risk Podcast. Hi there, I'm Eric Priestcounds, and this is episode 30 of the Comms Risk Podcast. The period between 2005 and 2010 was generally good for managers of telecoms assurance and risk teams. Everyone seemed to be talking about rising investment, and they behaved as if that investment would keep on going up and up forever. We seem less enthusiastic for conversations about investment these days. There are many signs that the investment in anti-fraud and insurance activities have been falling for a while. Arguments which fueled past investment don't seem to work so well anymore. So perhaps now is the time we should ask ourselves, what arguments should we offer instead? Atul Jain, CEO and founder of Tioco, has been one of the most supportive backers of the Risk and Assurance Group. And when he attended RAG, he spoke about the need to think differently if you want to achieve radically superior results. With Atul's advice in mind, I spoke at the most recent London meeting of RAG, and I talked about how we might think differently when expressing the benefits that can potentially be delivered by risk and assurance teams. This, in turn, might lead to a better argument for increased investment. Rack recorded the talk, and that recording is the substance of today's podcast. And as I'm now introducing me, instead of one of my usual guest interviewees, I'll shut up and let myself get on with it. Who recognises this slide? Who recognises this image? Shout out. Leonardo da Vinci. So a helicopter. Leonardo da Vinci's design a helicopter. The reason I put this slide up here is this kind of like me trying to be a bit crazy here by saying we all recognise it's the design of a helicopter, but it's not really the design of a helicopter because it wouldn't fly in practice. It's a work of genius. It's a work of art. He's a very clever guy, Leonardo da Vinci, ahead of his time. But this thing would not have gotten off the ground. It had the wrong materials to it. He didn't have the resources necessary to build a flying machine. So genius is not enough. And just because we can put a plan on a piece of paper doesn't mean it would work in practice. And the reason I use this image and give this uh, in my talks is I want us to think sometimes in our line of work, do we sometimes put things on pieces of paper that are clever and that, you know, we should respect the professional putting it down on the piece of paper, but they don't actually fly in practice because we don't have the tools and materials to make them work. They're a nice idea, they capture some useful elements of what we want, but they don't actually deliver the results that we would like. So I tend to talk a lot about crazy ideas. That was a crazy idea of mine. And as I say, today we're going to talk about some crazy ideas. So I'll talk about a guy who was pretty crazy, Steve Jobs, to try and frame some of the concepts here. Um, three quotes from Steve Jobs' career at different points in his career. I'll read them out for you, because I think they all represent different ways of thinking differently about how we address problems. First quote, if I were running Apple, I would milk the Macintosh for all it's worth and get busy on the next great thing. The PC wars are over, done, Microsoft won a long time ago. So what he's saying here is that you can be successful up to a point and then stop 
and you're not going to get any more successful applying that approach. So you're just going to do something radically different, not just hold on to success you've already had. Second quote, it will go down in history as a turning point for the music industry. This is landmark stuff. I can't overestimate it. Who knows what he was talking about there? iPod, yes, iPod and iTunes. So it all seems obvious to us now that digital music wasn't obvious when he was making the point. He's making the point about this being a turning point for not just his business, but for the entire industry. And it has proven to be true. It was a turning point for the way we consume music and subsequent other entertainment too, because you could say the iTunes store was then the model that was then applied to app stores. And look at how that's changed the world. The third quote, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? This was addressed to the former CEO of PepsiCo when he was recruiting him to run Apple. So what's Steve Jobs doing here? He's motivating that person to think differently about their career, what they might achieve. They've had a successful career being the CEO of an enormous corporation, but do you want to change the world as opposed to selling sugared water? Of course, he did fire him later on, but <laughs> nevertheless, it is representative of how he tried to motivate people to think about their work. So I'm going to use those three concepts in this presentation because the first point I want to make is that the X percent wars are over and we lost. I genuinely believe that for many years we've been milking the same theme that we will add a certain X percent of additional value to our companies. It's often quoted as two or three percent. There's a general belief, a hubbub around the world that this thing is true. It's always a bit hard to pin down specific data though that backs it. It's always very difficult to say where is the empirical science behind this percentage. And this is supposedly a very strong argument. The cost-benefit ratio, the payment, the payback period argued by this ratio is astoundingly strong. And if people believed in those in that X percent being delivered by what we did, they should surely give us more money to invest in what we're doing, being rational. But they're not. So my argument is not whether it's a good, whether it's true or not, it's just not working well enough at motivating the resources we want. So just as Steve Jobs might say, we lost to Microsoft, it doesn't mean that your product's poor or wrong in any way. We need to now move on and do something different. My argument here would be that we need to move on from this argument because we're seeing diminishing returns for this argument. We're not seeing a lot of additional investment in the things that we care about based upon this marginal small percentage of a total and tiny cost to achieve it. And I think if you start analysing some of the details of this, for example, if 3% leakage gave you a million dollar budget, would the 30% leakage give us a $10 million budget? No, that's not the way the psychology works, is it? We're not really backing a lot of these arguments with data, we're repeating people's opinions. So if you didn't really believe in those opinions in the first place, I only persuaded by hearing them over and over again. Probably not, I wouldn't have thought. It misunderstands words like revenues. Accountants don't think that the things that are being lost are revenues. They're not revenues for an accountant. You know, that revenues are something when you get very close to actually the cash collection point, not something that's like theoretically down the line. And a lot of things that are in that X percent are things that are a long way down the line. 
and where the money is supposedly being lost. It, or it, that X percent tends to focus on the errors that go against telcos. Tends to ignore that errors happen in our favour too. And how do we value that into this X percent number? We don't do a very consistent job of doing that, which again leads us open to criticism. And I don't think it represents the real economic value because some of these X percent, some of these leaks, they go straight to the bottom line, they affect the profit. Others don't. Others do not affect the profit, at least not in any sensible, straightforward way. And I don't wish to be rude about anybody and the work that they do, but certain activities like, say, piracy, it's not clear that the street value of a movie or a song is what your business is losing because something's being pirated. Because it's not clear that somebody would have purchased that from you legally and honestly if they hadn't stolen it. So the real economic value is open to debate. So, how do we turn, turn this around towards our favour? Well, now, here's the real crazy stuff. Because we tend to talk a lot, and I'm very glad that John brought up data in this presentation this morning. Because I think we focus a lot on data, because I think we tend to be clever people who understand the data, perhaps have a better grasp of the data than most of our peers. And we are very keen to perhaps apply mathematical techniques to that data to help draw the correct inferences and we spend a lot of time and effort trying to get the right answer with those techniques. But unfortunately, all that stuff ignores human psychology. Because it doesn't matter if we have the right data, and it doesn't matter if we draw the right mathematical inference. If human beings are biased and they don't want to hear the answers that we've given. And there's plenty of examples of the human race being presented with accurate, valid, solid data and mathematical inferences and still not drawing the right conclusions because they don't want to. And that's my point really today is, are we thinking enough about the psychology of decision making? And are we applying ourselves well enough to learning about human psychology in order to get the things that we want for our company? Whether that's understanding the psychology of a fraudster and why they do what they do, the psychology of our customers and what really keeps them happy as opposed to the things we say should keep them happy. And also the psychology of people in their own business. What leads them to make the decisions that we want to do? If we want to persuade more money to be invested in the things we do, we need to have the right psychological ploys, not just the right data. So psychologists do a lot of experimentation and gather a lot of data, and they should be changing the way we think about thinking. And I'm gonna give you some examples here that are kind of like make you think about whether the things that we say in this room that we all agree as conventional wisdom are maybe too hard for other people to understand. And I'll start with an analogy. So Eckhart Hess found that the pupil of the eye is a very good indicator of mental effort. If I asked you to do a mathematical puzzle, the extent to which your eye dilates is a very good indicator of how hard you are thinking to solve that problem. So if I asked you to uh, multiply together longer numbers, your eye will dilate further and further and further until it's too long. And then your eye will stop dilating and will go back to normal size because you gave up. Now what does this tell us? This tells us that even things like vision are related to things like mental ability. Okay? So if vision is literally related to mental ability, this can lead us to be blind to certain things. This is a slide from a psychological study. Can anything, but this is um, uh, a scan of somebody's lung. A radiologist would look for signs of cancer. Can anybody see what's wrong with this slide? 
Nobody's saying it. It's not, easy, it's not so easy with the colours, but there is something very clearly wrong with this slide. There's a gorilla in this slide. And the interesting thing about this particular study is that 83% of radiologists could not see the gorilla. Why? Their brain is working so hard looking for scans of um, tumours, indication tumours. These are super clever people. These are super like attentive people with fantastic skills and memory looking for certain patterns. They're working so hard to look for what they're looking for, they can't see the gorilla. 83% of the time they can't see the gorilla. And there's plenty of other examples. Some of you may have heard of the uh, experiment that was done where people pass a basketball between two teams and you count the number of passes and a guy in a gorilla suit walks through the middle and 50% of the audience don't see. So that's why they use gorillas a lot of the time. Because <laughs> they're making the same point. Inattention blindness is a real thing. Our brain can be working very hard and we can reach a point where we literally can't take in any more information. And the reason I bring this up is that this is my way. Have we have I, have I killed the clicker? So the, my way of making it up is that I think the mathematics of what we're doing, I think the challenge of what we're doing is too hard for our audience. I think we're overloading executives with arguments that we might understand are true from plenty of experience because we have the right skill set and we have the right approach. But our audience is not grasping and taking it in. They're getting to the point of inattentive blindness when they're hearing us talk about the value that we supposedly add. And so therefore, they're making an emotional judgment, whether they believe us or not, and they're not really being influenced by all our data as much as we'd like them to do. So I would say that you know, we want to use emotion more in order to get the right investment decisions, and that might be counterintuitive for some of us in the room to think like that. But at the same time, if you want more investment, maybe that's what we need to do. So I think the most important thing to be made here is that and, and, you know, there's some of the crazy examples here about how decision-making is influenced by activities that seemingly have nothing to do with data or anything else. So, for example, again, studies show, if I was asking you to do complicated mathematical statistical problems, kinds of things that maybe we should be talking about in our line of work, uh, your ability to deal with that mathematics would degrade over time if you start using up your brain sugar, which you do when you do those puzzles. So, if I give you sugar, fizzy sugar water, like PepsiCo might give you, you'll be better at solving those problems. You'll make fewer errors because you won't consume your top of your level of brain sugar. Studies show this to be true. So, the argument would be that when we went to executives with that argument, this is the X percent I'm going to deliver, give them a glass of lemonade. And make sure it's not diet lemonade either because it's got to have plenty of sugar in it. Because that will influence their ability to understand the argument presented. Another great one here. If you expect the executive to read through some complicated report that's going to be hard for them to understand, print it out. Really poor quality paper with terrible ink. It's really hard to read. Illegible font. Why do I so counterintuitive? But studies show you're more likely to take in the data correctly because your brain is working hard to understand what's presented in the paper because it's poorly printed than if it was well printed. If it's well printed, then you get lazy and you make more errors. And we can do this by doing tests that show you ask people questions about the data they read, they draw, they have many more errors when you print it out nicely. 
Now, I don't really expect you to go around with glasses of lemonade and like really badly printed reports. But it's psychology. I'm not making this stuff up. But one thing I would say you should talk about perhaps is we're perhaps a bit too optimistic about what we're going to do and say, these are the values I'm going to have. This is the benefit. Even our sense of loss is not really a loss emotionally for the people that we're talking about. We need to find things that they're really worried about losing, that they really take for granted and we say they're going to lose these things unless they listen to us. You don't agree, right? No, I do. Oh, okay. It's alright, you can check in. Although we're recording, is it the recording that's putting you on? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this guy, uh, a Nobel Prize winner, and won the Nobel Prize for economics, Daniel Kahneman, which is interesting, not an economist, a uh, uh, research psychologist. Uh, why did he win the Nobel Prize for economics? Uh, possibly the world's leading uh, uh, expert on understanding how human beings evaluate risk. And therefore, I'm drawing your attention to his work because he is the kind of guy we maybe need to understand the results he's arriving at and to understand how our companies make decisions relating to risk. And I'll, again, pick up a few quotes from what he's written over the years. Oh, and by the way, this is like a, a New York Times number one best-selling author, too. You know? So he, he writes material that's accessible to the public as well. It's not just academic papers. So Daniel Kahneman... He says that sadness, vigilance, suspicion, an analytic approach, and increased effort go together. Now, it does sound a bit like the kind of work we do, doesn't it? You know? Not happy, joyous stuff. We're smiling now because we know it's a bit of a joke, but really, we're the sad and miserable people who are analytical. And that, as he points out, the contrary. When in a good mood, people become more intuitive and more creative. Ah, great, we love that, don't we? That's an easy thing to sell, but then adverts, don't we, as telecoms companies. But we're also less vigilant and more prone to logical errors. So there is a mood element here to how people deal with risk and perceive risk. And his prospect theory shows that ultimately, when given several alternatives, people avoid op losses and optimise for sure wins. They don't take a purely mathematical approach to gains and losses, what's at stake and what might be received. They want to make sure they get a sure win because the pain of losing is greater than the satisfaction of an equivalent gain. And why do I bring this up? Because I think our 3% or whatever it is, I think that's really a gain. And nobody on the executive level cares about that 3%. I think we need to talk about the things they've already got and they don't want to lose. And I think that will be a different way of motivating them to think about investment decisions. They've already kind of factored in or they didn't notice or they weren't aware of the fraud or the leakage you've identified so far. So they don't feel like they're missing out. But if there's something they've already got that's suddenly going to see a big dip to their numbers, maybe they will think differently about investing in what we offer them. So that's my opportunity to say to you, a bit like Steve Jobs, here's an opportunity for us to think about turning around this argument, turning around what it means to lose something and what it means to gain something. And I think this links to what's actually happening in telecoms in general, because our priorities are changing. We're no longer in a business mode that's out to just get more customers, get more customers, get more customers. Now we're in a business model where we seek to retain our customers, encourage loyalty for our customers, sell more to our customers. Now, BT doesn't spend millions of pounds competing with Sky 
on TV rights because they want to sell the same amount of stuff to the existing customers. They want to sell more to the existing customers, which means those customers have got to like them and trust them as a brand, which means having a good relationship with a customer where the customer never has a reason to be upset, to complain about things. And this is obviously part of Sky's previous strategy, is to have a great relationship with the customers so the customers would never be upset. <coughs> and maybe that means we give them too many credits. Maybe it means that we're too soft them. Maybe we need to let some fraudsters get away with things. But it is important to us that we keep those people happy if we want to sell them more. We've also increasingly got to protect them from the fear that they are at risk when dealing with our company. Because if they are at risk with dealing with our company, they are less likely to want to deal with our companies and to buy things from us. So that's the future for fraud. Now, here's another little odd digression. Dr. David Dow, we've all seen his face, thanks to the power of social media. United Airlines, huge hit to their share price as a result of this one customer being badly treated. It wasn't only United Airlines that took a dip in their share price or suffered a whole string of negative stories immediately afterwards. It was every US airline taking a string of reputation damage as a result of this one incident. This shows us again, this is not about numbers, this is about how human beings think about big organisations. One bad incident can change how very many people think about your corporation and can destroy shareholder value. Even if it's not your company, even if it's somebody else's company, it can still destroy your value. So, networks have changed the world. I would say the United Airlines incident is really a case of poor operational risk management. And we could argue that most of us in the room are engaged in operational risk management. In the United Airlines case, they know about the probability of passengers turning up or not. They've got huge amounts of data. Huge amounts of data. No one can say the United Airlines didn't have data on whether people turn up or not. Okay? They know about the processes to let people get on board or not. They still managed to have a really poorly designed compensation scheme that was poorly applied in that situation. And they didn't think about the risk about using physical force against human beings, especially in a world where everybody carries a camera with them and can share it globally so it become an international diplomatic incident if the wrong thing happens on your plane. Yeah? So, and then afterwards they compounded. A lot of people talk about the risk management of United being the poor way they handled the communications afterwards, as if there was no risk management they could have done before to avoid this situation happening. A, a very simple point is that they wiped out hundreds of millions of dollars of value off their share price because they didn't want to pay more than $800 to any particular individual to get off that plane. That seems like a really poor ratio to me. But it's an example of how we may have used fear to change the way we think about risk management and the way we use our data to pinpoint how we can be more intelligent with our risk management. So my point here again, 143 million passengers a year cab by United, but social media means one terrible incident can devastate your company's share price, can really change your customer's perception about the quality of your business. And we have been a big part of changing the world. So isn't it peculiar? We seem to sometimes not take that seriously. Everybody, people must remember things like NT Health, 
and, and sites like those. There's plenty. Vodafone, it's one of my favourite. I don't want to be rude to Vodafone people. In Australia, they all use the word Vodafone to describe Vodafone now because they've got such a bad reputation. This stuff sticks, you know? It hurts your company. So, here are four examples of recent telecoms groups suffering 10 to 15% loss of their value within the space of a few days. Talk, talk, there was the hacking incident. And as a result, their share price dropped 15% lower, and they got a £400,000 fine by the Information Commissioner. MTN Group, they didn't disconnect some sins, as they were told to do in Nigeria. And as a result, the Nigerian regulator said, $5 billion fine. MDM got talked down to $1.something billion. But nevertheless, their share price took a hammering 20% lower as a result of the announcement of that fine. I mean, they could have disconnected the sins. They just didn't take it seriously, the fine that might have been given to them. Vodafone, there's a number of reasons. And by the way, this is Lee Scargill's slide. So credit to Lee for putting this together. Uh, Vodafone, there was a number of reasons why their share price fell, but one of the factors was breach of Ofcom's rules on consumer protection. Their share price fell by 15% in the course of a few days. And BT Group, most recently this year, there were some accounting irregularities in Italy, and, the and that led to, again, not the only factor, but one of the major factors that precipitated a big fall in the value of BT share prices, 20% share drop, 10% billion pounds of value lost in the case of days. Ironically, 10 billion pounds is more than the value of the Italian Union where they found the accounting regularities. So perception here is more important than raw numbers, especially things like this. So what my point is here is, we talk a lot about leakage of 3%. Look at this. This is a whole different ballpark. If you were doing something in talk talk, that stopped their share price dropping 15% lower. If you were doing something in BT that saved £10 billion of value, your argument for the amount of money that should be invested in that activity is in a completely different league to the arguments we're currently making, which are good arguments, are in the millions, but they're not in the billions. And then let's look at reputation damage. Around the world, telcos are getting hammered by the press, and I think rightly so in some cases. Not always, but rightly so in some cases. Bad headlines for Comcast in the USA, Bell in Canada, Verizon, you know, the damage to Yahoo as a result of their poor security. $350 million of shareholder value lost there. T-Mobile US, apologies, Experian. Incredibly angry, T-Mobile, yes, were at Experian because of the data breach that Experian suffered. And they wanted to distance themselves from their supplier for the impact upon that, you know? So all around the world, we can find instances of the press <coughs> helping to turn public opinion against telcos because the telcos allow themselves to become hostage to fortune and <coughs> particular failings that probably weren't seen as big deal by those companies at that time. I'm going to scoot a little bit. I don't want to be rude to anybody in the room, Vodafone. But this is the graph of postpaid mobile complaints that's received by the regulator over however many quarters. It's been 10 quarters in a row that Vodafone's topped the charts. If this was more publicly visible, I think even more people would be saying, why am I on Vodafone? This is a terrible, terrible graph. And this is a graph that's basically driven that peak of complaints to Vodafone by one poor billing migration project. How much money could they have spent 
on doing billing migration better versus the amount of money they're now spending on trying to fix the mess created with the customer request. I'm not being rude to anyone in Vodafone. It's got to be a simple calculation there. Better investment up front could save a lot of money down the line. And again, the headlines were, have been terrible for Vodafone. Absolutely terrible for it, but I won't go on that. So, my point here, no more sugared water. We've been selling the sugared water for a good number of years now. I think maybe we should change. It's not like selling this kind of feel good, we're going to give you 3% more. I want to be talking, I think it would be better if some of us are talking about when there are customers suffer fraud. And when are we protecting the customers from fraud? And what's the value of fraud that they have to endure because we're not putting in place enough controls? CFCA does a great job with their survey. I don't want to be rude to the CFCA. But they measure the fraud as the telco perceives that they lose the fraud. I want to know how much the telco's customers are losing because of fraud. I want my fraud managers to be incentivized to protect them too, not just look at how much my company is losing. Billing complaints. How much are we spending on handling billing complaints when we could have avoided the complaint in the first place? How much proactive investment would have improved the value of our company? How much are we losing because unhappy customers leave because of poor service that we give to them around things? Billing is the number two generic cause of complaints. You know, inaccuracy is a big issue. Are we doing enough as we should be doing to reduce that? If customers remain, are we just like patching up the relationship and destroying our chances of selling more to customers? Yeah. Do we even understand the psychology of our customers? We talk a lot about the data. I want to link that data to the data we've got and how much we're charging. And telcos being as bad as each other is not a good sales pitch. You know, ask the airlines. We're not going to, we need to work together on this stuff because we're not going to outperform each other. One David Dow in one telco is going to bring all our telcos down. In fact, I'll go back to the previous slide. Um, actually, no, I missed it out. But there was a great headline from one of the stories about Vodafone's building problems, which was basically uh, UK pundit expert says, all telcos as bad as each other. Mm. Yeah, so everyone's getting hammered by this stuff. So basically, I think I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to call it a day here unless there's people with questions. I think fear of loss is a message that we have been pushing hard, but we need to push a lot harder what needs to really lose the things that we already take for granted, and that's mostly our customers, our relationship with our customers, and our share price, and our relationship with our shareholders. And we need to talk about incidents that can dramatically collapse customer confidence and dramatically reduce our share price, even though they don't happen all the time. Because when they do happen, they sure as heck could justify investment, proactive investment to stop them from happening. And we would benefit from that increased investment. Customers are weak and isolated, a bit like sometimes we are, until they gang together. The David Down incident, the behavior, the voter fails, they're a great example of how we could network like our customers network to push for a better deal, better investment in our companies to protect them and to serve them. And so I think we should make similar arguments, we should work together. RAG is an example of being a place where we can come together and do that and make a pitch for increased investment. And that is all I've got to say today on that basic information. Thank you for your time and attention.
I'm Eric Priest-Cowns, and you were listening to my presentation at the July 2017 meeting of the Risk and Assurance Group. I'm grateful to RAG for suspending their usual Chatham House rule to allow me to record the presentation and to share it with you. Before I sign off, I'd like to briefly reflect on the fact that this is the 30th episode of the College Risk Podcast. The first podcast was recorded in January 2009. Since then, we've seen a lot of changes. Investment in disciplines like revenue assurance and fraud management has risen and fallen. Job titles have changed, with many now taking nominal responsibility for business assurance or risk management. Many of the people interviewed on this show have since changed jobs. Some of their firms no longer exist. Nevertheless, there is a need for people with skills like ours. The challenge is to marry those skills to the issues that most affect telcos and to show how value can be added. Adding value is what this podcast has always been about. And to do it, we rely on help from the people who know this discipline inside out. So please allow me to thank every guest who has appeared on the podcast over the years. They were Itzik Feinstein, Gadi Solotarevsky, Mark Nicholson, Mike Willett, Glenn Hovey, Guy Howie, Lee Scargill, Jeff Ibbert, Nissen Patel, Paul Lewis Borman, Mark Yelland, Vinod Kumar, Desra Hinsi, Tal Eisner, Hanno Alolio, Jan Dingenert, Jan Vivlut, Shankar Palaniandi, Rob Champman, Stefan Öftring, Paul Lear, Ernie Felber, John Brooks, and my recurring co-host, Dan Baker. It's these collaborations with the leading practitioners that keeps the podcast going and ensures there is always something new to say. I hope many of these former guests will be joining me during the next 30 episodes of the podcast. But that's the end of today's show. You can download this episode and the previous 29 episodes of the Comms Risk podcast from commsrisk.com. You can also subscribe for free via the iTunes store. Don't forget to visit commsrisk.com for the latest news and views about communications, risk and assurance. I'm Eric Priestcounds and this has been the 30th episode of the Comms Risk podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.